0: And that's the reason why most people turn to emotions rather than reason, because emotions are fast and frugal heuristics. They're quickly deployed. You're racist. You're a transphobe. It, it's a lot quicker for me to enunciate a position rooted in my emotions than to spend three weeks building you the nomological network that's going to convince you.
1: You're all infected. You're infected with Parasitic ideologies, I tell you. Everyone except me, that is. All of you. Anyway, that's enough hazing. It's now time for me to introduce the one and only Dr. Gad Saad. One of the most famous academics on the internet, even in the world, Dr. Saad is a Lebanese-Canadian evolutionary scientist and is known for his appliance of evolutionary psychology to consumer behaviour. Now, outside of academia, he's also famous for his stance on an outspoken criticism of progressive culture and academic leftism. In his fantastic book, The Parasitic Mind, he speaks of the ideological and anti-scientific concepts that take hold of people's brains like a parasite, and tells us how to guard against that kind of magical thinking. He's really a fascinating guy to speak to. It was a pleasure and a lot of fun. He uses great humour and wit and can also be quite abrasive, so be warned with his humour, such as when talking about the need for people, all people, to use their testicles more. I think that his tumultuous upbringing as a minority Jew in the civil war in Lebanon gives him a bit more free reign to venture into controversial territory and not to have to mince his words quite so much. He'll tell some of the harrowing stories from his childhood at the start of this episode and I appreciate Dr. Sad because I long for a bit more freedom to discuss scientifically researched and intellectual concepts away from emotionally loaded language. Get the parasitic mind in all the usual places and subscribe to Gad's YouTube channel. Just type in Gad Sad and you'll find it. Get in touch with me on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Gad on Twitter as well. He's got a big following there. Um, And let me, let us know your thoughts. Coming up are Emma Gannon, Calvin Robinson, Molly Bloom and other fascinating guests. But now you're on the edge with the wonderful, inimitable Dr. Gad Sad.
0: My name is Gad Saad. I'm uh, a dad to a few kids, uh, a husband, an extremely good looking guy, a (laughs) former soccer player. And I have been a professor for almost uh, three decades. My main area of scientific research is applying evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology to study human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. And I'm also someone who's very much engaged in the state uh, of ideas in the public square. I'm the author of several books, most recently The Parasitic Mind which I guess that's what we'll be talking about.
1: Absolutely thank you that was a very succinct and perfect introduction. I was really surprised I I loved your book The Parasitic Mind and reading it I was very surprised to learn of your footballing prowess. I'm a big football fan myself and where did that start because obviously you grew up in Lebanon so is that because Canada's not not known for the the football or soccer.
0: Except now when we've made the World Cup for the second time and we're looking pretty good but yes you're right. Uh, Look I have Pretty much the exact same story of every kid who's grown up, you know, in every imaginable place playing soccer from morning to night. Uh, You know, we used to play, we used to make soccer balls by crumpling paper together and putting scotch tape. So imagine if you could make something as irregular as that concoction, that you could control that, that you could juggle that. Then when you actually get a soccer ball, you could make the soccer ball write Shakespeare plays, right? And so that's why you usually find uh, a lot of players who come from, you know, these different sort of exotic cultures to be very easy on the eye. They're very skillful because they all kind of share that background, right? The, the, the kid in Brazil in the favela is me playing in Beirut in the streets. So soccer was always something that I loved. Then when we moved to Canada, uh, as you correctly pointed out, Canada was not a hotbed of soccer. And so I moved up the ranks within the Canadian system and I was you know, doing very well within that context, had I grown up in Spain, it might've been very different. Uh, the, it looked like I might be able to be one of the rare guys in the early eighties to move to Europe to play soccer. And then in the Canadian championships, in the Eastern Canadian championships, actually, we were champions of Quebec. I had a very, very severe injury, uh, in the under 18 championships that pretty much put an end to the dream. A few years later, I was playing at a much less competitive level. I had a massive rupture of my Achilles tendon. And so it definitely seemed like uh, soccer was out for me and academia was coming in.
1: A loss for the footballing world is academia's gain, I would say.
0: Well, aren't you lovely? Thank you.
1: (laughs) Tell me, uh, before we go into what the parasitic mind is, you start the book with um, a, a very moving description of your childhood, uh, which, you know, as a, a person from a Jewish background myself, I related to or in some respects, but of course, growing up in Lebanon is a totally different thing. W- would you be able to give me a little insight? Because I think it's, I think it was, it's really important. You started with that actually for the parasitic mind. So yeah, would you be able to give me a bit of an insight into that?
0: Sure. Uh, so we were part of the last group of Lebanese Jews that had steadfastly, you know, refused to leave Lebanon. My extended family had left, uh, you know, during you know the '50s, '60s, uh, because it was becoming uh, increasingly, uh, you know, precarious to be Jewish in the Middle East in general, and even in quote progressive and tolerant Lebanon. And so, we in the mid '70s, there was still a small, you know, viable Jewish community in Lebanon, uh, probably tor- totaling, uh, you, you know, less than a thousand people, maybe 500 people. So, n- not a huge community. I think at its zenith might have been you know several thousand people, but most had left. And then, unfortunately, the civil war broke out in the, in 1975, and we were basically stuck in you know the the brutality of a civil war by which all other wars are measured against. Uh, precisely because it was very tribal, very you know a mixture of politics, but of course of religion and. So there weren't many roadblocks, militia roadblocks, where the Jews would you know, have safe passage. Uh, and I say that because in Lebanon, we used to have what are called internal ID cards. And what was most prominently displayed on those ID cards was your religion. And so if you were an Israeli, which is Arabic for Israelite, not Yehudi. Yehudi would be Jewish. So it's, there's even greater animus because you lose your Lebanese identity. If you're just an Israelite. Mm-hmm. So if you were stopped at any roadblock, you, you, you probably were going to have a bullet in your head. Uh, and there were all kinds of other ways by which you would die. Uh, you know, they would come look for you to kill you. There was massive fighting streets to street. Snipers would kill you. The bomb, the shelling would kill you. So, the, so death awaited you around every corner. So that was the reality, you know, in which I grew up. Uh, but even before the civil war started, because sometimes people want to know, well, how was it before? You know, all hell broke loose. We lived, you know, a comfortable life, but always under the dark cloud of pervasive, endemic Jew hatred. And so in the book, I offer several uh, anecdotes that really speak to that. So when I was uh, five, almost six, when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt at the time, who was a pan Arabist, away there were these huge manifestations because in you know in the middle east everybody goes out and does these kind of public lamentations and so during this these demonstrations there would be the calls you know death to jews death to jews and as a five-year-old you know kind of cowering in my balcony it wasn't really a very pleasant thing to hear uh, another uh, story that i tell in the book that kind of speaks to the normalization of Jew hatred, even in a place that was supposed to be progressive and tolerant and so on. Uh, I might've been in, you know, maybe eight or nine. So this is, you know, about a year or two before the civil war started. The teacher asks us to stand up each in turn to, to discuss what we want to be when we grow up. And so, you know, this guy wants to be a soccer player. This guy wants to be a physician. This guy wants to be a uh, police officer. And the kid grows up, says, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a Jew killer. And everybody starts laughing, you know, rapturous kind of laughter and 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 clapping. Uh, but the kid knew that there were, I think there were maybe two Jews in the class, myself and another kid. So that's the kind of world that you grew up in, you know, uh, if you got diabetes, it was probably a Jewish plot. If your wife cheated on you, it's probably the Jews who, who uh, you know, uh, placed that thought in her head. If it's sunny outside, and too hot, it's the Jews. If it's too cold, it's the Jews. So in, you know, under that rubric of endemic Jew hatred, we could still, you know, forge a life for ourselves. But once the Civil War broke out, it was impossible to be Jewish. And so we put on our running shoes and ran really, really fast before they caught us.
1: There was that man, Ahmad, as well, who I think changed your paper towels.
0: Yeah, well, that, that story actually, you know, thank you for mentioning it, of all of the horrors that I went through in the Civil War, and, and you really, you you can't imagine what it's like to grow up in that kind of butchery. Uh, the... The story that I am most scared of, the one that kind of gives me the most chills is, is that story. So for, for for your listeners and viewers who who don't know the, the background to that story, let me just briefly tell it. So in, in, in we used to have this uh, service. Uh, so you, you know how you've got these rolls of like a towel that you can t- to dry your hands. At the time, there was a service whereby that was a cloth roll, which then the guy would come over, take out the one that you've now finished using, and then put a new one. So it's a guy that you know had come to our house, you know, maybe a few times. We didn't really know him much or anything. And so one day in the you know in smack in the middle of the Civil War, nighttime, there is a knock at our door. And uh, you know, usually a knock at the door during the Civil War. It's probably not a good thing. People are not coming over to visit you. They, you know, you basically can't show your face in front of the window because there's going to be a sniper who's going to blow your head open. And so it felt as though there was something ominous. Now I happened to be the first one to get to the door, and you know, I asked, "Who is it?" And he says, "You know, I'm so and so kid. You know, open the door. You know, I have a gift for you guys." Now, if at that point I were an idiot and opened the door just because I'm you know, an insouciant kid, uh, maybe our lives would have been very different. So I said, well, no, you know, so he, his voice kind of, his, he became more insistent and kind of more ominous in his, in his tone. He said, you know, open the door, kid. So I went to get my mother, uh, who then came to the door. There was a bit of a back and forth because we we're surprised that this guy is there. He's there with some other guys. Uh, and then, There was a gentleman who was at our house, not my dad, who who had been stuck at our house because he he lived not too far away, Uh, also a Lebanese Jew who has since passed away. And my mother asked him to go to the door to speak, if only to send the signal that there's a man in the house. And he was so cowardly. So maybe that's one of the places where I developed a great disdain for cowardice, although I think it's innate in me. And so then uh, we ended up, we didn't open the door. We, we contacted, uh, so I'm going to say the word in Arabic, uh, Satash. Satash means 16. So there was a division of the police force, like internal police that was just called the 16, if you want. I, I don't know if it's, that's the say. I, I don't know the, the reason why it's called that, but that, that's what they used to be called. And by miracle, they actually answered and serviced our call and came over so then we opened the door, and uh, the gentleman, the, the, the head cop, uh, asks uh, you know, Ahmad, he asks him, So, what's your connection to these people? And he tells him. So he goes, So, in the middle of the civil war, oh, oh Ahmad says that he brought some, in Arabic, the word is ramen, like uh, pome- pomegranate from the mountain you know we just were passing by giving giving you guys right now he knew that my sister was there he knew my mother was there he knew that my dad was not there and you know so i think it would have been a fun evening for him and maybe less fun for us and uh so the the cop looks at him he says so you came in the middle of massive fighting in the middle of the night with your friends because you want to give them you know pomegranate if i if I find you here again, you know, there's, you're going to have problems. And so the guy uh, looks and said, you know, in very, very chilling tone, uh, you know, I'll be back for you or something like that. And uh, so that story marked me because, well, I mean, it should be clear why it marked me, but it it kind of shows you the the vicissitudes of life, right? I mean, it's like the sliding doors thing. If I open that door uh, you know we're probably in a completely different reality but that was daily life in lebanon
1: and that was a very difficult childhood of obviously um and, and may have gone... I, I think the reason it's important that you preface the book with that story, I think, is because a, a lot of what the parasitic mind is about is criticising some of the progressive side, who are often see themselves as maybe more empathetic and emotional and that kind of thing. And I, I think... And also you talk about what we'll talk about in a bit, the homeostasis idea of, of when there's nothing to complain about, we'll look for things and find things. And you grew up in, in real danger and real difficulty. So... Is that was? have I hit the, have I got that right?
0: I mean, you're right that, you know, offering a, a context to, to, to some of the things that are written later is important, of course. Uh, I would say that the primary reason, uh, other than contextualizing faux victimhood to real victimhood, as you correctly pointed out, I think the, the dangers of some of the idea pathogens that were perfectly exemplified in the Lebanese context is a good point to make. So, for example, identity politics, which is one of the many idea pathogens that I discuss in the book. Well, you if you want, if you wish to create the perfect perfect in quotes, of course, perfect society organized along identity politics lines, well, then look to Lebanon, because everything is along is, is organized along those lines. Who becomes prime minister or president is based on your religion. How many parliamentarians sit in the parliament is dependent on your religion. So everything is viewed through the prism of a collective ethos. And so the Balkans also had that. Rwanda also had that. Syria also had that. Iraq also had that. So uh, sectarianism and creating tribalism is usually not the path you wish to take if you want to implement an ethos of classical liberalism, which is, you know, individual dignity, individual freedom, the individual before the collective. And so to me, that was a very powerful story to tell because when you now have entire political parties in the west in general that say hey the way to move forward is to tr- is to tribalize everything to balkanize everything so i come along and say yeah okay well let me tell you about the perfect tribal society
1: and i sp- i suppose that they they think they're doing it and i suppose that even the people in lebanon at the time and the people who all those all those cases you've raised would believe they're doing these things in the name of righteousness
0: of course and that's that's what's so Grotesque about uh, you know, all of the progressive idea pathogens because they they're they're all cloaked in quote progressivism, but they're all fatally non-progressive. But you know, if I wear the cloak of progressivism, so that's really the the worst form of ideological fervor when you kind of come on your horse of, you know, uh upper, upper brow, uh, you know, moral high ground, when in reality, each of the ideas that you're espousing, if you truly understand individual dignity, they're all antithetical to that.
1: That's expressvpncom com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. So what is, in its most basic uh, description, what is the parasitic
0: mind? Let me give the background to why I use the, the, the metaphor of the, the parasite. So uh, as an evolutionist, one of the things that uh, w- I do and what evolutionists do in general is they use what's called comparative psychology. So for example, if I want to study toy preferences within the human context, I, you know, the sex specificity of toys uh, in the human context, I can turn to vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys and chimpanzees who are close animal cousins, some more than others, and say, well, how do they, do they exhibit the same behaviors? Because then I can draw what's called the homology, meaning that if, if you see similarity either in morphological traits or in behavioral patterns, then this suggests that there's a common ancestor between us and, and the, the chimp or the, the monkey and so on. So this is a, a, a tool that is often used when you are building evolutionary arguments. And so what I wanted to do is go to the animal context to look for a mechanism that might explain how an animal could become so detached from its evolutionary self-interest? How how could it be that you could be so parasitized that you do things that are contrary to what would be best for you? And this is where I, you know, really got, got, you know, knee deep into the literature on neuroparasitology. Parasitology simply means the study of parasites. But of course, a tapeworm could be a parasite, but it's in your intestinal tract. Neuroparasites are the, and there are many of these across all sorts of taxa in the animal kingdom. Neuroparasites is when the parasite wants to find as its ultimate destination, the host's brain, altering its neuronal circuitry, altering its behavior to suit the interests of the parasite, not the host. And so there are many, many examples. I discuss a few in the book. The one that most people may be familiar with is Toxoplasma gandhi, which would be a parasite, by the way, it can infect humans too, but the classic example is when it infects the the brain of a mouse, the the mouse loses its innate fear of cats and becomes sexually attracted to the cat's urine, which is not a very good sexual attraction to hold if you're a mouse, but it serves the reproductive interests of the the Toxoplasma gondii parasite. And so that was my epiphany. So I will use the parasitological model to argue that the human mind could not only be parasitized by actual brain worms in the same way that toxoplasma Gandhi can do, but by ideological brain worms, right? So, and that's why I call them idea pathogens. So these ideological brain parasites can alter our behavior and sp- by changing our belief structures, for example, so that we then implement public policies that are perfectly to our best detriment rather than to our benefits. And so that's what the parasitic mind is all about.
1: And so is that a case of individually people are trying to get status within their tribe? I guess that's the evolutionary look at it um we used to be able to do that more from dominance you know but you can't really be dominant in our society today in, in such a way uh you can do it through success that's a way you know make a fire and that kind of thing you'll get more of the food and more of rep- good reputation and then the other the other place is virtue so does, the, does some of that sort of parasitic ideology come from the, the pursuit of of virtue
0: exactly so that's why i have a as you correctly pointed out in, in the book i have a whole section on you know the evolutionary roots of virtue signaling versus costly signaling, right? So costly signaling is a a profound evolutionary concept. It basically says that for a signal, a biological signal to be an honest one, honest in what it's trying to emit as a communication, it has to be costly. So for example, if you take the peacock's tail, the peacock's tail could not have evolved through natural selection in terms of conferring a survival advantage to the peacock. Because if anything, a larger, more conspicuous tail reduces its survivability. It makes him, it makes the peacock more visible to predators. It makes him less likely to be able to uh, escape. So its burdened. that tail, is very burdensome. But that's where the dual process from Charles Darwin, of sexual selection. So some traits evolve because they confer a reproductive advantage to the organism. So even though from a survival advantage, it confers a, 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 a negative, but it, and why is it a, a, a reproductive advantage? Because it is serving as an honest signal to the, to the peahens, to the females of that species, hey, despite the fact that I'm carrying this very burdensome uh, trait, I'm still here, that's an honest signal of my phenotypic uh, and, uh, and quality and my genotype. Yeah. It just, I'm, I'm good genes, I'm a good insurance policy, mate with me. So it's, an, it's a big neon advertisement that says, choose me. Well, I then take that principle and I apply it when it comes to these kind of ideological forms of signaling. So to, to write Je suis Charlie, is very, very cute, and it's very nice on Twitter, but it carries zero cost. To speak forcefully against Islam from an Islamic country, you have to have very, very large testicles and a well-defined spine, right? So you have to be a vertebrate who's got testicles, right? But all of the folks who do the uh, hashtag Jusri Charlie, hashtag bring our girls home, hashtag Ukraine, and all the other bullshit, they are truly engaging in a form of costless virtue signaling. Now, the term virtue signaling has become, you know, it has mimetically spread so that everybody understands this meaning. But what I'm doing in the, uh, in the parasitic mind is I'm offering the evolutionary explanation for why it is a useless signal, because it carries no cost. So yes, there are all sorts of ways that you can study these uh, idea pathogens from an evolutionary perspective, but more fundamentally, like, more important, not more importantly, but beyond why individuals espouse those beliefs, which is kind of the the question that you were getting at, because I want to be part of the cool tribe and so on. The the more fundamental question is why do those idea pathogens ever evolve in the first place, right? It's one thing to talk about why Andrew might decide to become part of the blue haired Taliban. That's one thing. But it's another thing to say, but, but why would that Idea pathogens be so alluring to you. And I actually, of course, address that in the book. And I argue that each of the idea pathogens, and maybe it's, it's worthwhile now to give an example of what these idea pathogens are. Postmodernism is the granddaddy of idea pathogens, cultural relativism, uh, social constructivism, everything is due to a social construction, biophobia, uh, you know, the fear of using biology to explain human affairs, radical militant feminism, is an a idea pathogen. Each of these idea pathogens are very different from each other, but they share one commonality. And here I draw an analogy with cancer. So if you look at cancer, they, they, they manifest themselves in a very different way. Uh, a melanoma acts differently than a uh, you know pancreatic cancer, which is different from uh, leukemia. But what they all do share in common is the unchecked Division of cells. So we can at least say that if we go to that level, that's what's common across all cancers. Well, what is common across all idea pathogens is that they all start off with a noble goal. So there is kind of a hint of something worthy in that idea pathogen. But then in the service of that noble goal, you decide that if you need to murder and rape truth in the service of that social justice goal, then so be it. So it's a form of consequentialism. It's okay to completely lie in the service of this greater noble goal. And, the, and, and in, in doing that, what you end up doing is you, you, you unshackle yourselves from the pesky shackles of reality, right? So if I put the, the term trans before any, transracial, I I discussed new forms of trans in the book, trans gravity and trans ageism, right? So I'd like to participate in the under eight judo championship. So I'd like to now self-identify as a seven-year-old who only weighs 80 pounds. So through the magic wand of trans ageism and trans gravity, I could now compete. Now it sounds as though I'm being satirical and I am, but that's exactly what it says. Now, nobody is denying that People who do suffer from gender dysphoria, it's a real thing. Transgender people do exist and they should be afforded all the dignity of anybody else. So sign me up for that noble goal. But in the pursuit of that goal, I don't then cancel people because they say, surely we can all agree that only women menstruate. And it is wrong to say that boys menstruate. But as JK Rowling found out, Well, no, you do get in trouble for simply enunciating a truth that the average three-day-old pigeon knows. So in the service of a noble goal, we end up killing the truth, and that's what's common across all these alluring, empathetic idea pathogens.
1: This subversion of truth um, in the name of righteousness, and you, you address this in, in the book, um, it happens, I mean, the examples you've given are all sort of progressivism and leftism. It happens, of course, on the right as well in terms of often it's religion, isn't it? That righteousness and and, and that subversion of truth as well. Like God says, we'll do this, and you've done that wrong. Why is it that, and I know this already, but why is this that, that you go primarily or almost exclusively after the left
0: yes and, and i actually and you and you again thanks for raising that issue i i i address it very early in the book precisely because i you know predicted that these are the kinds of uh you know positions that people might or you, why are you focusing on the left? well i'm focusing on the left for the same reason that a dermatologist focuses on melanoma and not asthma right? That doesn't mean that asthma doesn't exist, but that means that, you know, I'm a dermatologist who focuses on skin cancer. Now, so let's apply that analogy to to the the actual context. I exist in the world of academia. The world of academia is completely, almost exclusively populated by leftist schmucks. Therefore, (laughs) yeah. There you go. That's the, the,
1: I love the, the language you use. It's, it's just, it. you know what it is? It's, it's, um, it's unusual for academics to sort of to use the language about testicles and schmucks and things.
0: That's why I'm that sad.
1: That's why you're that sad. Yeah, go on. Sorry.
0: <laughs> so, so because I live in the world of academia, hence I understand that every one of those idea pathogens were spawned and promulgated by leftist academics. That's why I focus on those. That doesn't mean that people on the right can't be parasitized by other idea pathogens, as you so correctly pointed. So I made that clear very early. It's not that I'm implying that when you are a leftist, you're simply more prone to be parasitized. And as a matter of fact, I make also the point that being educated doesn't inoculate you against parasitic thinking. If anything, it is the most educated that spawned all those idiotic ideas, right? And that's why I kind of reworked the the quote by George Orwell, you know, it, it takes intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. And so, so that's why the left is so clearly in my, you know, in my gunnery, in my vision, not because, you know, I'm trying to be tribal, not at all.
1: I like that concept of smart people Uh, making some of the biggest mistakes because they can sort of take their brain. They can convince themselves of things. Arthur Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes writer, was a great example because he believed in fairies. I really liked that one. But I guess we have to be careful as well because then you also get people on the other side who start saying like, oh, screw the experts. There's no experts. I don't want to hear from an expert. And I guess, do you have to toe that line and be like, well, the experts do know what they're talking about, but sometimes they have ideologies that sway them a certain way.
0: Yeah, uh, well, I think it's, you know, that's why I'm so, one of the other things I, did at the start of chapter one, if you remember, I talked about what are the two life ideals that shape all of my life trajectories. And I said truth and freedom. And the reason why I picked those is precisely because I, I want to explain why I am so morally indignant, so mystified by the murder of truth, because it's, a per, it's an existential attack on my beings, right? So, people say to me, well, you know, why do you take up the mantle of fighting this fight? You already have a very pressured uh, life as a professor. You know, you don't need to be taking all that. I mean, uh, just take my wife. She's often said that. And the reason why I, uh, my answer is because I have a very, for better or worse, I think it's for better, other than for my blood pressure. Uh, I have a very exacting code of personal conduct so that by the Know the end of the night when I put my head on my pillow, I need to, in order to not suffer from insomnia and, and feelings of being a fraud, I need to feel that I did all that I could in any context possible to have always stood up for the truth. Right? If I were to equivocate my language or my positions, if I were concerned about careerist issues, you know, I better not say this because I won't be invited to the cool kids party. The harshest critic are not the morons who don't invite me to the party. The harshest critic is the gentleman that you're speaking to, it's me. And therefore, that punishing code of personal conduct ensures, again, for better or worse, that I'm always engaged in the battle of ideas because I just can't walk away from seeing these... Con- yeah, I, I'm bewildered that all of these things that are happening in the West are happening, right? I mean, it, it used to be great when in the past... One tribe wanted your women, so they attack you. This other folks that don't want to give up their women will fight you, and let's fight, and then may the winner win. Whereas now we don't do that. We are self-inflicting all of these problems. It it breaks my heart having escaped the Middle East 45-plus years ago.
1: Do you think that the – and I won't say the right, but the non-woke on the left and right, people who just don't like this sort of subversion of truth, um, have a marketing problem because – we're calling these people, I suppose, liberals, progressives, snowflakes. All of these things uh, have connotations of sort of, again, righteous, and they sort of they play right into their hands. They want to be considered. Well, I would melt as like a snowflake because I am so considerate and empathetic.
0: Uh, I mean, so the marketing problem is stemming from the the snow, the blue haired Taliban, or from the ones who are not in that camp. Which are you saying are the marketing
1: from from the the anti-woke side by calling them those things it's playing into their hands
0: i mean perhaps look a lot of those things are simply are from my perspective they're just uh, either viral memes or not right so for example you know as someone who understands psychology of persuasion oftentimes i name things the way that i do not only because they're accurately descriptive but because i know that there is power in picking the right terminology, right? So, so when I use terms like, you know, uh, the homeostasis of victimology or ostrich parasitic syndrome, I don't do it just because I want to sound cool and, you know, be viral, but because when you name something accurately and poignantly, then it's, it's, it's transmissibility increases. And so I don't think there's a marketing problem. Although I I would argue that you, you probably have seen this, that the the left, is it the left that doesn't know how to meme or the right? Well, what's the typical? They both meme, meme a lot.
1: The, the right are memers, aren't they? They do a lot of, the, there's a lot of the 4chan stuff. They do the frog.
0: Yeah, so I, I don't know if there is one group or the other that's that's more marketing savvy or not. In a sense, I don't think that the left needs to be marketing savvy because they've choked every single institution that spreads the the, the knowledge, right? In a sense that they have complete monopolistic power over all the transmission of information. That's why, by the way, they're going, of course, apocalyptic over Elon Musk, right? So, I mean, imagine the level of lack of self-insight you might have. I mean, really, it's, it's baffling. You almost think it's satirical. Where some, you know, leftist imbecile comes on, you know, a show and says, you know, with Elon Musk now, you know, controlling Twitter, he'll be able to control the information, cancel people, control uh, the ideological positions, stop politicians from speaking. Gee, I wonder if prior to Elon Musk, that reality was already in place, but they're so tribal, they're so parasitized that you you can't even imagine that they could have such lack of self-insight. So I think the left has been so comfortable in having monopolistic power over every single conduit of the intelligentsia, right? I mean, it starts with academia, it's almost 100%. Uh, you know the HR departments, journalism, Hollywood uh, it's all completely dominant and I discussed this in the book I mean you you look at in the in social media companies the percentage of breakdowns of contributions to the Democrats versus the Republicans it's insane right I mean it's not 70 30 it's you know, I don't know. I don't remember the exact numbers They're quoted in my book, but, you know, Apple, it's 98.9 percent to Democrats. The next one, it's 99.3 percent. So how could you then pretend that there is no bias in all of these institutions? It's the most grotesque form of bias possible. So a long winded way to say. Whether they are marketing savvy or not, they don't need to worry about that. They already hold all the power.
1: I saw you hiding under your table as a satirical uh, attack on the Elon Musk uh, warriors.
0: I had to come out. Imagine the courage I had to kind of come out of hiding to be able to have this conversation with you above my desk. What courage.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so, um, I mean how do we know that your truth is the right truth or my truth is the right truth? Because Arthur Conan Doyle went to bed every night going, you know, I've told my truth to Houdini about the fairies and now I can sleep well. So how do you know?
0: Yes, so in chapter seven of The Parasitic Mind, the chapter is titled How to Seek Truth. uh, I basically uh, describe, and here you'll forgive me, it's going to get slightly technical. uh, I describe an epistemological tool that if if people listening to this were to internalize it, my God, we'd live in a better world. Uh, and it's called nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So let me—it's a mouthful. So let me let me begin actually from taking someone from your neck of the woods. You, you're in London right now?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, Bristol right now, but yeah,
0: yeah, Bristol. Okay, so third division in soccer.
1: <laughs> There's two teams. Well, I'm from Watford, um, who are about to go down to the second. Division, very true. Um, but my team is Tottenham, so it's okay. Oh, that's called the Jew team, isn't it? I, I know, I know. Although if somebody who wasn't you said that, who wasn't Jewish, I'd, I'd be like, oh, oh, calm down. I can get away with it exactly because <laughs> I'm Jewish, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's a whole other story about the yeah the Jew the Jew team or, or whether Jew sounds. I had this talk with David. Bade- Do you know who David Bedil is A comedian in the UK? I don't think so. He's a Jewish comedian who wrote a book called Jews Don't Count, and it's all it's very. I think you'd like it. It's about uh, Uh, how Jews have not been added to the woke list, the hierarchy of of victimhood. So it's a good book. Uh, But he talks a lot about how the word Jew sounds because he's so used to hearing it as an insult uh, as opposed to Jewish. And so he now he calls his Twitter bio now, and he's got a big following um, as well, like millions of people, and his Twitter bio just says Jew, and he's owning it.
0: (laughs) Very nice. I like it. I'll have to check him out. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what was it? Oh, yeah. So, from your neck of the woods, Charles Darwin, uh, when he was, so I'm, I'm, I'm ex- just to contextualize. I'm explaining this prior to explaining nomological networks of cumulative evidence, which is the way to seek truth, the, the way to. Seek truth. So, Charles Darwin, what makes him the incredible uh, mind that he is, for many reasons, but one of which is that he, if you want, was arguably the original guy who developed or, or the most famous guy to develop this methodology of nomological networks, although he didn't call it as that. Now, what do I mean? He wanted to demonstrate the veracity of the theory of evolution. He did it in a systematic way over several decades using data from a bewildering number of sources. So from paleontology and from ecology of and from comparative Uh, morphology and from, you know, from all sorts of, from biodiversity, from geology, very, very different disciplines, all of which are triangulated to demonstrate that it is incontestable that his theory is correct. And people have tried to falsify it for 150 years and they haven't been able to because it's, it's correct. Okay. So now how do we apply this in the context that I'm saying? So nomological networks of cumulative evidence in my context is where you, Take a phenomenon that you're trying to prove is vertical, and then you say, can I come up with data across time periods, across animal species, across cultures, across methodologies, across disciplines, all of which demonstrate that it is true. So let's take a a concrete example. I discuss a few in, in that chapter. Uh, earlier, I alluded to toy preferences, and I mentioned comparative psychology with the vervet monkey. So let's use that example. So if I wanted to demonstrate to or prove to you, Andrew, that uh, the sex specificity, the sex specificity of toy preferences, is not a social construction. So boys play with trucks and guns and and, and uh, balls, whereas girls play with uh, dolls, not because of their universally sexist parents, but there are some evolutionary biological reasons why that might be the case. How would I go about demonstrating that truth? Well, I will, I'm will. i going to build you a nomological network stemming from completely radical lines of evidence. So line one, I already alluded to this earlier. I can show you that vervet monkeys, rhesus monkeys, and chimpanzees Their infants exhibit those sex-specific toy preferences. So already that is pretty compelling evidence. But I'm not going to stop there. I I only is that true? That is true. Uh, And and, you know, yeah, I I I have all the citations for all the studies that that have found that. Right. So okay. So now I go to developmental psychology. Well, sometimes, well, oftentimes when you want to demonstrate that a mechanism is is innate, in other words, it's not within the purview of social construction. The way you do it is through developmental psychology, whereby you as, you, as your sample is made up of children who, by definition, have not yet entered the cognitive developmental stage of being socialized. So by definition, you're ruling out the possibility that it is due to socialization. So you take children who are three months old, six months old, and you try to study whether they already exhibit those sex-specific toy preferences. Now you might say, well, how do you elicit that preference? You do it by how they which one they, they, they go towards or which one they stare at first or which one they stare at longer or, or ask for it, you know, without using language. And it turns out that developmental psychologists have found that those sex-specific toy preferences already exist. So if I stopped at those two lines of evidence, I've already destroyed the argument of social constructivism, but I'm not because I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to drown you epistemologically in a tsunami of evidence. Okay, so then I'm going to look You might say, oh, but that's just because that's Western culture. Okay, well, why don't I go to sub-Saharan Africa with all sorts of nomadic and semi-nomadic tribes that are as different from uh, Western cultures and show you that they exhibit the same preferences. And voila, they do. I can get you. You might say, oh, but that's a contemporary thing. Uh, you know, maybe in a different era, it would have been different. Okay, no problem. How about I get you data from ancient Greece and ancient, uh, uh, you know, Roman thing, whereby on on mausoleans, on funerary monuments, an analysis of the depiction of children shows them playing with the exact same toys as today. Okay, I'll do one more, although I could have done many other lines, but you're getting the point. Uh, How about I get you data from pediatric endocrinology, whereby little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a masculinizing disorder well what happens to girls who suffer from that disorder their sex pref- their their toy preferences are perfectly reversed they become like those of little boys so it becomes very very difficult for you once I have given you all that data right so so this is why I mean I walk into a room with 500 completely moronic social constructivists with all of the swagger that, I can afford to carry precisely because I have built that nomological network and I know that I don't need to emote more than you or be more hysterical than you. I'm going to show you the nomological network and you're going to keep quiet and not in agreement by the end of our conversation. That's why I am able to do what I do. But now the beauty of that epistemology is that when I know, I know but also, I'm well calibrated about epistemic humility. So, if you were to ask me, "Hey, uh, Gad, uh, what are your thoughts about the legalization of marijuana in Canada, uh, pursuant to Justin Trudeau becoming prime minister?" and I'm going to say to you, "You know what? I have I simply haven't built the requisite nomological network, assuming that I can do so, to be able to offer you a you know an, an incontestable answer. So, you know what? I'm walking away from this. I don't know enough about it. So when I know I have my network, you better be ready to debate because I'm going to squash you. And when I don't know, I will say it. So I think, now, there is one small problem or maybe big problem with the methodology that I'm proposing. It requires a lot of cognitive effort, right? If I can't get you to sit quietly while I build you the nomological network to convince you, or if you are the one who's trying to convince someone, if you don't have the intellectual alacrity to, to put in the effort to build that network, then it's not going to be a very helpful epistemology, right? So it requires openness to listen to evidence, and it requires effort to build that nomological network. So, and that's the reason why most people turn to emotions rather than reason, because emotions are fast and frugal heuristics. They're quickly deployed. You're racist. You're a transphobe. Obama said that Islam is speech. Shut up, bigot, right? So it doesn't it, it's a lot quicker for me to enunciate a position rooted in my emotions than to spend 3 weeks building you the nomological network that's going to convince you. So short of that small problem, that is the ultimate liberation when it comes to seeking truth. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights What
1: you're saying is, is really relevant um, today because in, in Britain, because um, a woman who's known as the world's strictest headmistress of a school, uh, Catherine Burble-Singh, she was on this podcast as well, and she's now uh, the chair of the Social Mobility Commission um, in the UK, and she came out and said that she thinks that the the reason fewer women do physics and maths is because they don't want to do it, and that she's basically saying what you're saying, I think, uh, and And people have reacted very, very emotionally. And my response to that was like, like you're saying like, well, I don't know. And it could be that that's not true at all. Although I would imagine she has more experience than I do. She's been working her whole life in education. Um, but I don't know, but the fact that you're not even allowed to wonder, are there differences? That's intriguing to me. Do we have differences between, and we seem to be able to talk about the ones where perhaps the, the, the one that's considered more of the victim has better qualities. We're always told about those ones, you know, but, but not when they might come across as not being good at a certain thing. Did you know about that in maths and physics and stuff?
0: I didn't know about the case in Britain, but certainly sex differences in general and sex differences in the pursuit of certain disciplines and you know occupational trajectories is certainly something that I'm very well aware of. As a matter of fact, one of the nomological networks that I built uh, in the chapter where I described that methodology exactly deals with sex differences when it comes to human mating, whereby I'm trying to demonstrate that there are certain innate sex differences when it comes, for example, to seeking sexual variety. And that that's not because of the patriarchy and social construction. And I, I offer a bewildering number of lines of evidence to demonstrate that argument. And so it would be quite easy for me to build a nomological network to demonstrate why the sex differences in, in these disciplines exist. And you know, good luck to the person who wants to take me on. That you know, it's it's interesting because. Uh, you might do you know who james Damore is no james Damore a few years ago you know came out of obscurity as a you know mild-mannered soft-spoken engineer at google where he he was you know the, the google had asked hey can you guys share some reasons why oh yes go on so that was kind of the called became colloquially known as the you know the google memo and uh so, you know, in, in a very, very mild manner, so, so they were, Google was soliciting that feedback, you know, in an internal forum, and so he basically said, well, you know, hey, could it be that here's some tons of evidence that suggests that there are sex differences in men and women's interests, right? So it wasn't even men are better, that, so, so there wasn't sort of the, 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 the corrosive use of the word better at something, although, of course... Men are better in some things. Women are better in other things. And we're equally good in other things. That's called life. But uh, uh, but, but just for him to dare say, so he was fired. And he actually had came on my show shortly after being fired. Now, at the time, I had been presumptuous in thinking that he wrote the memo specifically after I had visited Google. Because I, I had gone to Google, to the main campus. They have a program called Talks at Google, where they invite these you know, whatever high profile people to speak. And I had first been surprised that I was invited to speak about evolutionary psychology thinking that, but I I thought that biology is only for Nazis, you know, but it turns out that they were open to it. So I was invited. And then shortly after my talk at Google, his memo came out. So I wrongly presumed that he was an attendee at my talk, and that had given him the courage to speak. And then he, when we communicated privately, he told me, "Oh no, I was hoping to go to your talk, but I was actually out of time. So I'm glad to see that he 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 mustered the courage independently of me. Uh, and for that, he was fired. So he said some unbelievably tame, you know, rather banal things that are fully, fully substantiated in the scientific literature. But you know." You have to murder truth to maintain the argument that men and women are indistinguishable in every possible way.
1: It's so complicated. So we've covered, I suppose, gender um, and some of the progressive stuff. What about free speech? You mention in your book, um, Gert Wilders, is it? Um, Yes. He got in trouble. He's the Dutch uh, leader of the PVV, I think it was, for saying horrible things. I think he asked the audience um do you want do we want less moroccans and they went yes and less and then he said okay we'll ha- we'll see what we can do
0: about that. That's quite bad, isn't it? Uh look when you say moroccans that you're targeting what appears to be individuals even though you're not saying you know Ahmed Hussein the Moroccan. So uh to me that's not a good way to construct your argument, okay? But if you were to say, to the extent that most Moroccans are Muslim, and to the extent that there are certain tenets in Islam that might be inconsistent with our Western foundational values, do you think there might be problems if we increase the demography of people who share those values, right? So this is why I don't get into the kind of trouble that so many others who say unbelievably lesser confrontational things do get in trouble for. Number one, and if you forgive me for speaking of myself, number one, I am a honey badger, so people tend to shy away from tackling me because they know that I'm just relentless. Like I'll go after you, I'll go after your dead animal. Fish. There's no end to what I'll do, right? I mean, ideologically, right? Ideologically, I don't mean physically, right? So, so I'm I'm, I'm rather pugnacious, and I don't ever, you know, relent. So already that makes you know people are afraid of those who stand up to the bullies. So that's number one. But number two, I construct my arguments in such a way, even though sometimes I use you know, colorful language, the content is always very clean so that I can always defend my positions precisely because I've got the reflex of using the scientific method, of using those nomological networks, so that it's very hard for you to ever corner me as a bigot and as a this and a that, right? Now, of course, it also helps that I come from the background that I do, right? So I'm also protected by that. I, as I always joke, but I'm being serious, that I hold the highest card in victimology poker, right? So if you know if Andrew says it and he comes from Bristol, yeah, uh, well, that's not so good. If, if you're called Jim Smith and you're from Arkansas and you say, that's not good. But God Saad, the war refugee, you know, who gets very dark skin if he sees the sun for three seconds, then that's someone you don't want to mess with because he scores high on victimology, which of course is, is a grotesque way to adjudicate debates. But hey, let's use your currency, your meaning progressives, uh, to win the battle. So if 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 all my reason doesn't win the, the war. on on the battle of ideas, then I'll just turn my victimology poker cards and then you'll run away like a little girl.
1: I think it's your humor as well. I think I think they like to get people who aren't expecting it. Somebody who accidentally said the wrong thing. They don't like the Google guy. They don't like the guy who wore that shirt when he was talking about um, uh, Mars or whatever it was, some mission in space. I, I can't remember. He wore a shirt with naked because he wasn't expecting it and he didn't mean it. So they were like, well, get him. But when somebody's like you, or I'm thinking James Lindsay or someone, you can't really cancel those people because you're just, you, you find
0: it funny. So that's it. And not only that, I... Double down in my humor, so then it—you literally, I mean, not literally, but you, 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 you figuratively see their heads blowing up in anger. So I'll give you a concrete example of that. So I've I've often said, and actually I mentioned this in my next book that I'm currently wrapping up. uh, I often say that the of all of the the Cretans that I've interacted with in in my public life, the most dangerous ones are not the Islamists the two most dangerous group are the tofu brigade and the pronoun Taliban. Uh, so the tofu brigade are the uh, vegan folks. And it turns out that they come after you <laughs> to no end. And usually the way it, ha- the way it happened with me is that I, you know, I'm, I'm known as a very big animal lover, but yet I post food pics where I'm shown eating, you know, a piece of chicken and to them, you know, I'm a moral hypocrite, I'm a Nazi, because how could you love animals and, and consume animal protein? And when I tried to engage them, they just relentlessly came after me. The other group where I'm going to describe this humorous approach uh, are the pronoun Taliban. So he, here's the story that, that uh, took place that, that led to the humor that I'm going to tell you about. Uh, I was sharing on Twitter uh, an encounter that my wife had. We'd, we'd gone to our local cafe and the barista who was serving her looked like a transgender person. So she came back to me as we were waiting for our order and said, you know, I felt very concerned. I was worried how to address the person, uh, you know, so it was, so I was sharing that story to demonstrate how sensitive, how kind, how concerned she is to not want to offend this person's feeling like she wanted to play by the pronoun rules. And so in, in, this, in describing the episode, I said, well, you know, she was frozen in fear. She was frozen in fear and not wanting to hurt that person's feelings, right? It's, it's, it's a virtuous trait. It's, a, it's an empathetic trait that I was exhibiting of my wife, right? 28 million tweets and views later. I mean, literally, I think there were something like 28 million impressions. Not 28 million. I think it's 28 or 26. I'll even send you a screenshot of it. (laughs) Uh, So one, you know, when you can go on Twitter, you can see in a given day, how many impressions you got. I think one day it was 12 million and the other day it was either 14 or 16 million. Uh, Valerie Bertinelli, a moronic actress from the 1970s, uh, who, you know, is super for the, you know, transgender people came after me. That led to, you know, thousands of those folks coming after me, you know, you should die, you should kill yourself, your wife is a bitch, she's mentally ill. And so did I, did I panic? Did I put out an apology? A, you know, I will learn better and I've been taught this was a teachable moment. No, I went hiding under my desk demonstrating that I am so afraid of the pronoun Taliban that whatever I went through in the Lebanese civil war is nothing as serious as, you know, forget about Fatah and Amal and all the militia groups that wanted to behead us. The real danger stems from the pronoun Taliban. They went, I mean, they went nuts because to see someone who is exposed to, you know, millions of hate and yet just go like this and laugh it off, and guess what? Two days later, there were no more impressions on Twitter. They moved on. Now, where does that come from? It comes from two sources. Number one, the unique combination of my genes makes me the person that I am. I I don't do well with intimidation. You come at me, I'll come after you. That's just how I am. But number two, I am protected by the self-assuredness of my principles. In other words, I don't need to cower Because I am able to enunciate and articulate why I think you are such a gargantuan imbecile. Now, I can tell you that while caressing you and telling you you're so good looking, (laughs) but I'm still going to demonstrate that you are a walking buffoon. Therefore, I don't need to hide or issue apology letters because I truly believe in what I'm saying. You are a Cretan for saying that my wife needs to be in a psychiatric institute because I was trying to demonstrate that she is so kind and compassionate. I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to double down in mocking you. And so that's the way you you organize your, your belief system. Be assured. That's why in chapter eight of the book, Andrew, I talk about activate your inner honey badger. Why? Because a honey badger, for those of you who don't know, has been ranked as the most fierce and ferocious animal in the animal kingdom. It is the size of a small dog. And yet it could withstand an attack of six adult lions. The reason why I say six is because you can go on YouTube and see those clips. So there are six adult lions that are unbelievably bigger than the honey badger. And yet they run away in retreat because the honey badger goes berserk. It looks insane. So they say, this guy is nuts. I'm not going to mess with that guy. So I argue be a honey badger when it comes to defending your positions. Now, don't don't be a, a an idiot in doing so. If, as I said earlier, if you don't have the nomological network to support your position, then maybe don't be a honey badger. But when you do, then activate your inner honey badger.
1: The problem is, about ninety nine percent of people don't have the whatever that big word was for the network. But I mean, you know, what does your wife say to you about all this? Because she can't thank you for getting her involved in all this. She must be like, oh, please stop.
0: Well, okay, you you so so let's say the day after or the day following that something happens, and then she preempts. She goes, "Do not tweet that." <laughs> right? so she, yes, she's aware.
1: But poor woman,
0: that poor woman. <laughs> woman yes, yeah, she deserves a Nobel Prize Prize. Uh, but but the reality is, I mean, if I may speak on her behalf, I think some of the things that cause us some trouble at times is also the reason why. She hopefully found me attractive to, to choose me. Right. I mean, right. I, I, I'm, you know, few women have uttered the following words. I'm really attracted to a pear-shaped nasal voiced, unambitious, unassertive whiner who plays video games in mom's basement. You could have at me. I'm so I'm drawn to to a sexual frenzy at such a guy, meaning that because I've had this conversation where she says, well, you know, can you, can you temper your engagement if only to lower your blood pressure or whatever? And then I I, I, I get what you're saying, but the reality is that the exact things that made you attracted to me are the things that you're now asking me to suppress. So I think what we can all do though, is maybe strike the right balance. And so, so what I now try to do to reduce, you know, my, sense of indignation at all the morons is you know i don't i try to not you know get onto my emails or reduce my social media on the weekend right so i institute some behavioral guidelines that hopefully reduce my stress but i you know the old you know the parable with the uh scorpion and the frog right i can't change who i am for better or worse i would say i mean you got beautiful blue eyes dr Sads. well aren't you my goodness aren't you kind I might hire you as my uh, de facto guy who gives me compliments to make me feel good about the world.
1: <laughs> no, lovely blue eyes. So I think that's why she's with you. And I just I'd end on the point that... Um you know you you said at one point in this interview that it, the world would be a better place if the if people could all think a bit better and that kind of thing but you know so i've done a lot of just as a p- presenter on tv like to journalist, i've done a lot of uh exposing religious thinking and that kind of thing and i'm really happy those people do exist because it gives me something to you know attack and go at and and the way that you've ex- described your mind and how it works um just going and going you know what would you have if you didn't have these people to get annoyed about
0: such uh i mean look i think that i would my conduit for the cerebral life would have simp- would have been slightly channeled elsewhere right i mean so in other words w- w- you know there are two things i love in life in terms of grand pursuits you know soccer playing soccer i mean i don't mean to imply that i'm a two two trick pony but you know the two passions in my life were soccer and the cerebral life so uh there are some ways to manifest the cerebral life that doesn't increase your cortisol levels right so if i weren't spending so much time fighting in the arena of the battle of ideas maybe i would be publishing more you know scientific papers but my need to create to be involved to be rolling around in the mud of ideas was always going to be there. It just depends on which forum I use to do so.
1: Where do you want people to get your book? I put just Amazon and stuff, right? And and follow you and stuff.
0: Uh, yes, they can uh, purchase the book on Amazon. Uh, they, uh, they could, If they want to follow me on Twitter, it's at GAD, G-A-D S-A-A-D. I have a YouTube channel that also gets mir- mirrored on my podcast, uh, The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. Uh, on the channel, it's a whole cacophony of you know panoply of things so uh it could be i just open the laptop and just vent for five minutes about you know why justin trudeau pissed me off today or it could be a one hour formal academic lecture or it could be conversations like we're having here where i invite guests and we do long form chat it's a combination of stuff uh, so you can catch me there and i'm on all the other social media platforms thank you dr Gadsad. you've been on the edge thank you so much sir pleasure talking to you
1: Thank you, Dr. Gadsad, for gracing the the on-the-edge stage. What a tour de force he is, and plenty of food for thought. I could have gone on talking to him for hours about all different topics, and we did have a bit of a chat after the recording stopped, which was great. You'll never hear the words uttered between us in that moment. Get his brilliant book, The Parasitic Mind, in all the usual places, and subscribe and follow Dr. Gadsad on YouTube and Twitter please keep on reviewing this podcast and getting in touch to say hi. I love it. Love hearing from people. It's been really nice, especially since the Q&A the other day. Lots of community vibes. And I'll see you in the next episode.